0: So we're continuing our study of the spiritual skills. Uh, this is really just a synthesis of, of what we are to do in terms of application of God's Word. Different tools to develop uh, over time. Uh, on Friday morning, this last Friday, as we've been discussing various things related to the spiritual life and the gospel, uh, we got into a discussion related to scriptural teaching on uh, spiritual growth and the bearing of fruit and I made the point um, that fruit is not something that is produced immediately that we can look at various analogies of plants that we that we grow from tomato plants to pecan trees to oak trees that it takes time to for fruit to be born. Fruit is different from growth. That first comes growth, then comes fruit. And so the only way to get there is through the Word of God, because Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, sanctify, which is a term used for spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, sanctify them by means of truth. Your Word is truth. It is God's Word as absolute truth that is a part of the fertilizer and nourishment that is needed for the believer to grow. The other part is the ministry of God the Holy Spirit as we walk by the Spirit and walk in the truth, walk by means of truth, which we will come to that command when we get into Ephesians 5. So in a lot of ways what we're studying here. Uh, helps us to sort of categorize uh, what we 'll learn as we come to these practical exhortations in um, in Ephesians, the last part of Ephesians four and into ephesians five and as I said a couple of times already when I started this, I thought that well, this is just going to be good review for everybody, take two or three weeks. But I realized a that people who 've heard it before need a lot more review and people then we have a lot of folks who have not gone through this with me and they need to hear it some are hearing it for the first time so this is uh, this is very important so we're teaching these spiritual skills and i like that term because it emphasizes the fact that a skill is something that is developed it is something you train for it is something you uh you decide in your soul that you are going to perfect in your own life. And so this is not something that automatically happens. There are too many people who have uh, taken a wrong conclusion that if you are walking by the Spirit and you're being filled by the Spirit, that, that spiritual growth or obedience just automatically happens. That would be a pagan mystical idea that has seeped into your thinking. Nothing is automatic. We have to make decisions. Just like working out, you, you you can go to the gym and walk around the gym for an hour in the morning, and it's not going to do a whole lot in terms of building muscle and getting you in shape. You actually have to make decisions to work out, to do various exercises. And then uh, over time, uh, you'll see the, see the results, and that's what these skills are. We have to learn to do them and to implement them when we're facing various uh, circumstances and situations. So we have gone through several already. We've looked at uh, confession of sin because if you're walking by the flesh, the sin nature, you're not going to get very far in solving problems related to sin because the sin nature just manufactures more problems for us. Are for you, and um, and then we walk by the Spirit. And see, we we walking is an active voice verb. You have to choose to take each step. And as you practice walking by the Spirit, it comes a little more, uh, a, a little more naturally. Uh, but we don't just automatically walk. Uh, we have to learn how to do that. And then as a result of that, there are certain, the rest of the skills are what keep us walking by the Spirit, keep us in fellowship, enjoying that fellowship with God, partnering, as it were, toward a common goal of of spiritual growth. So we looked at confession, we looked at walking by the Spirit. We looked at faith, rest, drill, taking God's promises and claiming them. And then the last two or three lessons, we looked at grace orientation, that is aligning or orienting, conforming our thinking to grace and not works. And works just seep into everything for us. We think about the fact that, um, and I had a pastor tell me this before I went to seminary as a a suggestion. He said, you know, we have this, Thing in our culture that if somebody takes you out to lunch, then you have to return that favor and take them out. That's really grounded in legalism. You may think it's good manners, and it it is. But you know, if somebody does something for you and you think that you have to do something in return, fit that into the cross. Because Christ died for me, I have to do something for him to, to earn that. And that's legalism. So we have to learn to think graciously. And it's two of my favorite uh, illustrations, I've used them a lot, some of you may not have heard them, was when George Meisinger was a student at Dallas Seminary. And Dallas Seminary students back then, as now probably, except now they can take out loans, uh, were dirt poor. And he was doing an internship down here in Houston, and Pastor Theme was going on a vacation uh, with his family, and so George and Sandy were house-sitting during that time. And uh, just as he was leaving, Pastor thing turned around and came back to the door, reached in his pocket. This was about 1966 when a $1 dollar was worth more than it is now. It still wasn't worth a dollar then. But he reached in his pocket and pulled out $600 bills. Now, remember, minimum wage in 1966 was about $1.40, forty. And he handed that to George, and George says, no, 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 I, I, I can't take that, I can't accept that. And Pastor Theme looked him in the eyes, only he could do, and said, if you can't accept this, you'll never understand grace. The other example comes from Jim Myers. Jim was at the church uh, back then, early 70s. He would taken a church up in Arkansas, and he was down in Houston, and they were getting rid of the library because they needed that space for something else. And Pastor Theme said, just go in the library and take whatever you want. Jim regretted the fact that he only took about a box of books, and years later he said, I wasn't grace-oriented to take enough to take them all. See, we're afraid to take advantage of grace. But guess what? You and I... Wrongly take advantage of God's grace every time we sin and continue to sin, and we just think, "Oh, well, I'll just confess it, and then then I'll be back in fellowship." So uh, that's grace orientation. Now we're going to talk about doctrinal orientation: how to value the Bible. Now, if I were to ask you, why are you here this morning? I don't know exactly what you would say, but I would probably receive a number of different responses, not all of which would be either wrong or not focused enough. Uh, Some would be wrong. Some of you would say, well, I came to worship the Lord. That's great, but it's not focused enough. Others would say, I came so my kids would have instruction. You hear that a lot. People go to church because they're kids. That's their motivation. In a lot of churches, you'll hear, well, I really enjoy the music. Or they're involved in an orchestra, they're involved in the choir, and that is a big part of their life. That if the music were taken away from Sunday morning, they wouldn't be there. In a church I previously pastored, uh, we got into this discussion about the significance, biblical significance of, of music, and the kind of music and the kind of hymns, and there were um, there was and how long you should sing, because there were those who wanted you know thirty, forty five minutes of that. I say, well, if you want that much and singing really is a response to what we've learned, let's just move it to the end. We'll have the teaching for an hour, and then we can stay and sing. Nobody wanted to do that. And what it exposed was that they were there because they really like the feel-good singing. Uh, I was having to re-educate that church on a lot of these issues. So in my experience, there are not a lot of Christians who make the study of the Scripture, understanding the Scripture, the most important part of what is going on on Sunday morning. It is not that these other things are not important. Some of them are important. But the reason that we come is to be encouraged, strengthened, taught, in the words of Paul, rebuked, corrected, and instructed in righteousness. That's why we should be here. That's what your answer should be. On a good day, I think that's probably true of some of you, that you would say that. But that is why we are here, fundamentally. It is nice to have uh, fellowship with others. Some people come because they want to be with family, they want to be with friends, lots of other reasons. But the point that we come together is the Word of God. The purpose that God gave me the gift of pastor-teacher... Ephesians 4:11 and 12 that we have studied is what my job is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry my job is not to entertain my job is not to amuse my job is to train people so they can be effective christians serving the lord jesus christ in the body of christ and that means we have to get the Word of God into our souls. In Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, in the first opening part of Deuteronomy, Moses is reviewing the law that God gave them on Mount Sinai. And he says, and Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6 are at the uh, forefront of... What the scriptures, uh, what, what the law says, and he summarizes it in verse five. He says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength." Actually, it's an odd word there that is normally translated "strength," but it sort of means with every ounce of your being. How do you? Show that you love the Lord. That's verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Now heart in Scripture means the very center of your being. It it primarily has the idea in, in just about every passage of the thinking part of your being, not the emoting part of your being. And it addresses, in some cases, your your volition as well in conjunction with your thoughts. So we are to have God's word in our souls. That's what should be there to control us. We have to know His words. Notice it didn't say His ideas. It didn't say His theology. It doesn't say even say doctrine. It says His words. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. That's key, is internalizing and assimilating His word. We've been studying in Ephesians and we've come to the opening part of the exhortation or application part of Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, uh, starting by verse 25, going all the way down to Ephesians 6 9, there's a lot of commands. And then after that, we have the issue of war, uh, spiritual warfare. And so we got into this because we are looking at how do we, what are the spiritual skills for handling anger? And then since anger is a gateway sin to so many other sins, what are we, what, how do we really deal with sin in our life? And I don't mean this from a legalistic standpoint but we recognize that that from the importance of Galatians 5:16 and following Paul says we're to walk by means of the spirit and we won't bring to completion the works of the flesh which seems to suggest that we're, we're not supposed to just, well, I just feel like sinning is sort of like, like somebody, every time they sit down in front of certain foods, they just have to gobble it all down with no restraint whatsoever and say, well, I'll get on a diet eventually. I've known people who've been eventually trying to get on a diet for the last 45 years of their life. They never quite get to it. And that's the way it is with a lot of Christians. And, and it seems to suggest we're, we're supposed to use the Scripture so that we do not have a permissive environment in our soul for the sin nature. Now, that may be a new thought for some of you, so just hang, hang on to that. Uh, it's not approached legalistically. How do you know what's controlling my life? Well, Paul then says the works of the flesh are, and there's a whole list of different sins. And it's not an exhaustive list. And then he says, the fruit of the Spirit, that is, these character attributes and qualities are what's produced in the life of a person that is walking by the Spirit. It doesn't happen automatically any more than when you plant a lemon tree, a lime tree, a pecan tree, or an oak tree that you're going to immediately see lemons or limes or pecans or acorns, It's going to take time, time walking by the Spirit, because walking by the Spirit works in conjunction with walking by means of the truth, which is the Word of God. So it's not the charismatic, Pentecostal, mystical kind of thing. It is studying the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12, which we will look at uh, eventually. So this is what we're doing. What are we going to look at this morning? First of all, I want to make some introductory comments, as well as define some terms. I think sometimes precise terms get fuzzy in people's heads, so we need to define them. Second thing we're going to look at is what the Scripture says about the value of Scripture. What should the priority be in terms of the Word of God in our life? And then we'll close out with a couple of suggestions on how to transform our focus on the Word so that maybe it goes from a lower priority to a higher priority. So as we've studied in the last couple of weeks, when we use this term orientation, it means to align our thinking to something. We looked at it in terms of grace orientation, that we need to conform our thinking, align it to the reality of God's grace. And now we're going to learn that we need to align it to God's Word. The word orientation uh, (coughs) comes from a lot of different uses, but in orienteering, which was an exercise with a topographical map and a compass, what you're learning to do when you're out in the woods is to align your map to the reality of the topography and the reality of the four points of the compass so that you can then negotiate uh the trail and end up where you want to be and that's why these are good terms but they get they get a little fuzzy for some people so let's talk about this as we begin uh in terms of just some introductory comments like uh what is a doctrinal orientation so we're Skipping into what the Bible teaches about these spiritual skills, so that we can have the abundant life promised by Christ. The background on this is building this analogy. That's what it is. That God is our fortress. So how do we how do we practically live within that fortress? And so this is the this is the model. You have the uh, soul fortress. And we've looked at the confession of sin to get inside. You've got the filling by means of the Spirit. We have the faith rest drill and grace orientation. And now we're adding uh, doctrinal orientation. So we have to define the term doctrine. That's a term you'll find that a lot of people use. A lot of people don't know what it means, and they use it all the time. You go to seminary, it has a different meaning. You go into other environments, it has a different meaning. So what in the world is doctrine? That is a key word. What do we mean by doctrine? And the emphasis there is what we mean by doctrine, when you hear people around here uh, use that phrase. And then the critical question, is knowing doctrine the same as knowing God's Word? And that that really is key. So that's the first question I'm going to ask, is knowing doctrine the same as knowing God's Word? And the short answer is no. A lot of people confuse that. They think that because they know a lot of doctrine, they've heard a lot of Bible teaching, that they know God's Word. The two are related but they are different concepts. Don't confuse them. Because uh, over the years, I've seen, as I've gone to Israel, and I see this almost every year, I always have a guidebook, a tour guidebook, that goes through each place we're going to go on the trip, and it gives Scripture references for uh, that location and what happened there and what God taught there at that place for example the first place we usually go if we depending on when the flight comes in is we go to Joppa. Joppa is located uh, on the coast there at tel aviv just south of the airport where we fly in so it's convenient we get in there about 10 or ten thirty. it's a good place to go and we can eat lunch there before we go to the next spot and Joppa is significant in two places in scripture can you name them? Don't say it out loud, but just think in your soul, can I name the two significant places in Joppa? The first is in the Old Testament. That might help you narrow it a little. And it is occurs in Jonah, because Jonah has been told by God to go to Nineveh, and Jonah says, I don't want those Ninevites. He was a racist. I don't want those Assyrians saved, so I'm going to the other end of the world, and he went down to Joppa, which was the port, and he hopped on a ship that would take him to Tarshish, that's over by Spain, instead of going east to Nineveh. And we all know the rest of that story, but what that shows us is that Joppa there is standing for, reminds us that God's grace was extended to the Gentiles in the Old Testament. That's the doctrine, but the doctrine comes from knowing geography and what the scripture says. So knowing what the scripture says won't necessarily get you to the right doctrine, and knowing the doctrine doesn't necessarily mean you understand where it came from. The next place we go is uh, we go up to Caesarea by the sea, and that's tied to Joppa. That's in the New Testament because people, Peter is living in Joppa with Simon the Tanner when God gives him a vision, the bottom line of which was that what God declares clean are now clean, and God's declaring the Gentiles clean. And so Peter needs to go with the uh, messengers that came down from Caesarea by the sea to take the gospel uh, to Cornelius. And so you have two instances uh, where Joppa is significant, and both of them have to do with what? The gospel goes to the Gentiles. See, that's the bottom line teaching, application, and implication. But you don't get that just from knowing the geography and knowing the biblical stories. And if you don't know the biblical stories, all you've got is an abstract principle that's not grounded in the word of God. You have to know the Bible, and you have to know the doctrine. Doctrine comes from the Bible. But you have to know both because nowhere in the Scripture does it say that it is doctrine that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's always the Word of God. It's always the Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. doesn't say all doctrine. It says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, number one. So that shows you there is a biblical uh distinction that comes between knowing the Bible and uh knowing knowing doctrine. So many people over the years as they've started looking at the guidebook as they were getting ready to go to Israel say, Man, I thought I knew doctrine. I thought I knew the Bible, but I'm reading through this and I'm pretty ignorant of biblical events, biblical people and biblical places. So that's why that's that's important. Use the map in the back of your Uh, bible you got a good study bible you should have good maps back back there and look at those places you see me put maps up all the time because those are very important in terms of really understanding what goes on in the text and we know that there are some churches that emphasize the bible over doctrine so people really don't have a grid for applying the word And other churches emphasize doctrine over the Bible, and so you have people who may be theologically adept, but they're biblically illiterate. We want to not be illiterate on either end of that spectrum. We need to be biblically literate, and we need to uh, be able to think our way through the teaching, the doctrine that is in the passage. So what does the word doctrine actually mean? There are two words we're going to look at. The first is the word didache, which simply means teaching. It's used 30 times in the New Testament, 13 times in the Gospels and Acts, and it means teaching or instruction, and it's emphasized in various various passages. It is only used, interestingly enough, only three times in the Gospel of John, And yet it is uh, very significant, especially in this one verse. It describes what is happening in the earliest days of the church age. It comes following Peter's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost, the day the church began, and it describes the result of his teaching that morning. And the result was that the people, some 5,000, were saved. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. There's really only two things there. Uh, I've retranslated the next word. The and is really that is. It's appositional to fellowship, Fellowship with, it's always fellowship with God, and fellowship with God is exhibited in the New Testament through uh, celebrating the Lord's table, Uh, fellowship, that's why it's called communion, a term that comes from fellowship, and in prayer. In prayer, we have fellowship with God, we're communicating with God. So there's only two things there, but they're devoted to the apostles' doctrine and to prayer. That's a priority in their lives. 2 Timothy 4.2 and Titus 1.9 are both out of the pastoral epistles. They are addressed to pastors. And in 2 Timothy, Timothy is told to proclaim the word. Keruso is the verb there. Proclaim the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When I was ordained, I was told, be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. That's in season and out of season. Convince. That means apologetics, to convince people of the truth of what Scripture says. Rebuke. That means step on their toes. Let the Word of God step on their toes, not me. Uh, Exhort, that means to challenge people with what the Word of God says. And then it's to be with long suffering, that's patience, and teaching. So, convince, rebuke, and exhort are accomplished by teaching, not by preaching, by teaching, by instruction. Titus 1 9, Paul tells Titus, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now notice this is addressed to those who are teaching something contrary to the word, and part of the role of an elder or pastor is to hold firm to the word, and be able to by means of sound doctrine to challenge exhort and convict those who contradict these are critical for understanding this terminology now an, uh, another word that is used and and i didn't mean to have these those verse same verses on this uh, on this slide this is distinct but what we have here is the word didaskalia are didaskalia actually, and this means teaching or instruction as well. You can see that didaké, the D-I-D, is in the same words, and so that's the kind, that's the root. And this is used in Ephesians 4:11 4, to 14. He himself gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and pastor teachers. Why? What's their purpose? So the pastor-teacher's function is for the equipping of saints for the work of service. See, part of what happens as a believer grows is they want to serve the Lord in some way, and it's going to be related to your spiritual gift, and that's within the local church or helping with missions or missionaries, something like that. So I equip you for the work of ministry, a work of service. And that should come along uh, as you grow and will be exhibited somewhat early. I remember, I think Jeff alluded to this when he was uh, talking about uh, uh, getting ready for Brazil, is realizing that, that he could really do this. He could teach. He had learned a lot over the years. And I remember, and you 've heard me tell this story, my talking with my former first grade Sunday school teacher who was uh, saved uh, when she was in her i think i would say late uh, late twenties or early thirties and she was going to Baraka Church at that time. This was about nineteen, late, 50, late 1950 or early 51. And she and her husband, who had been a British, I mean, had been a POWs, British uh, POW of the Japanese outside of Shanghai, which is where she lived, and she was Jewish, Jewish background. And they got married, and they came to Houston, and their, her employer was a dentist who invited them to... To church, and they had never heard anything quite like that. She became a believer. A year later, some of you who have been saved 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and you say, I don't know enough to go teach in Sunday school. She had been saved a year, didn't have a thimbleful's worth of knowledge, and was asked if she would teach first grade. The the church had shrunk earlier, and they were reinstating Sunday school, and they said, we need a first grade teacher. Will you teach? And she said, well, I guess God's going to strengthen me and help me to figure out how to do it. And she said yes. And within two or three years, she and the pastor's wife wrote one of the best Sunday school curriculums I've ever seen. See, if you say yes and take those baby steps forward, God's going to take care of you. But you've got to say, okay, I'm willing to do something other than sit on my butt and take notes all the time. We've got to internalize it and apply it. So uh, it takes time. But I equip you to do the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to what should be a better translation, a mature man, a mature individual, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Another purpose... Our result clause that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of what doctrine. There's our word. See doctrine. There's all kinds of doctrines. There's human that are spoken by the church by by the scriptures. There's there's uh, human doctrines. There's doctrines of demons. There's biblical doctrine teaching that comes from the Word of God. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen says all scripture is breathed out by God, literally, given by inspiration of God, it's not a good translation. Breathed out by God is, and is profitable for doctrine. That's number one. As you are taught, then you are going to be told you've got some wrong ideas and you've got wrong opinions. And that's the first test. Are you going to change your opinions to conform to the Word of God or not? If you say, no, I'm not going to conform to the Word of God, you won't be around very long. Uh, We have to conform our thinking to the Word of God. Uh, So it's going to tell us we're wrong and correct us and instruct us in the right path, in righteousness. With the result that the man of God that refers to the spiritually growing believer will be complete, the Word of God is sufficient thoroughly equipped, thoroughly equipped. That's sufficiency of Scripture for every good work. So what does doctrine mean? Well, as you know, I'm teaching history of doctrine on Monday night, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't quite understand what that means when they come. But we have to understand that, that doctrine is a technical word in some different applications. And um, John Hanna, in his book, Our Legacy, The History of Christian Doctrine, says that doctrine may be defined as the response of the church. See, its doctrine is really the synthesis and categorization of biblical teaching. That's what he's saying in different words. It's uh, the response of the church to questions that have been posed either by heretics, those outside the church, or by the faithful within the church. It's almost universally translated teaching in the New Testament, and it is that which is taught or put forth as true and embraced by a school or group. In the New Testament, it refers to the teaching of Scripture relative to any theme. So that's where we get the idea of categorical doctrine as we categorize it and organize it that way. It has some other meanings. In the concise Oxford Dictionary, it refers to a set of beliefs or principles held and taught by a church, political party, or other group. In Merriam-Webster, I think it's the 12th Collegiate Edition, uh, the second meaning is, uh, it means, first meaning is something that is taught, but the second one fits more what we do. A principle or position or the body of principles in a branch of knowledge or system of belief. Now, what's interesting is that the way we use doctrine has a lot to do with military uses. And so I went to a website for the Modern War Institute and found some very interesting verbiage and ideas there that fit a lot of what we do. As a military term, it begins, Army doctrine is defined as the fundamental principles by which the military forces or elements thereof guide their actions in support of natural uh, national objectives we're in a war we have god's objectives but we have to understand that that there are principles for how we live and how we fight that has application uh, it also says according to the old uh, field manual 3-0 Doctrine consists of three elements, fundamental principles, second, tactics, techniques, and procedures. Now, that's really important. See, we use the word doctrine to refer to everything from, from the initial concept in the, in the verse all the way through to the application and implication of the verse in our lives. Okay, we don't use it like seminary students do where it is just virtually a synonym for systematic theology, uh, that, that, that that then they'll talk about doctrine and they'll talk about reality. So it tends they tend to uh, separate it from reality, but doctrine includes everything: how you think, why you think, how you think, how you communicate, and how you live. It goes from every from the beginning, the uh, the very uh, introduction to the ideas, all the way through to its application, categorization, and correlation with other parts. Of the Word of God, for example, come to a passage like Matthew four four. It says Jesus, He answered and said, "It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God." Now, who's talking? Who's he? So you can't just quote that verse without thinking about. It. You have to learn some more. Who's talking? That's Jesus. Who's he answering? It's the devil. The context is the temptation in Matthew 4, the three temptations of Christ when he's in the wilderness. Where is it? It's in the wilderness, traditionally down by, by Jericho. Where does this come from? When he says it is written, where was it written? Well, Deuteronomy eight three. Moses wrote, So he humbled you, that is, God humbled you, the exodus, uh, this is going to be the conquest generation. God humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which was the bread of angels, which is a miraculous bread that God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. Manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know, that man shall not live by bread alone, But man lives by every, and it's italicized. It doesn't say word in the original, but that's what it means, because the context is everything that comes out of God's mouth. That's going to be words. But I think the emphasis is a little stronger when you translate it, everything. It does have that word there, everything that comes out of God's mouth. Uh, That's how we live. Now that, you take those two passages, the New Testament quote from the Old Testament, and you think about that and you start deriving a principle. And the principle is you can't really live unless you're living according to everything God says. See, so you now you've gone from the what does the Bible say to what is the doctrinal implication and application? What's the teaching that's there? And the teaching that's there is... That, that just as it's necessary for you to eat physical food every day to have biological life sustained, you need to take in God's Word every single day so that you can have your spiritual life sustained. And the context is that this is how Jesus in His humanity is resisting successfully the temptation from Satan he has memorized the scripture, he has hidden God's word in his heart, and when Satan tempts him through a misuse of scripture, Jesus responds with the correct use and application of the scripture. He doesn't say, now this relates to the doctrine of the word of God. He quotes the scripture. Now I know that shakes some people up because they think, man, I just need to know the principles." But that's not the examples that we have in Scripture. It's the Word of God that is living and powerful. Now, how should we value the Word? We're going to kind of fly through this. Uh, In Psalm 19, we have one of the most central passages, key passages, on the importance of the Word of God. The first six verses really talk about general revelation, the nonverbal communication of God's power and existence through his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Okay, at that point, it's a demonstration of who he is and what he can do. But it goes further than that. It communicates God exists, and it communicates specifics about that. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's enough knowledge in the nonverbal communication of creation to hold the human creatures accountable for knowing God or not. But their response, according to Romans 1, is more often that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so what happens in 1 through 6 is basically the emphasis on general revelation, which is God's nonverbal disclosure of himself through creation, through his providential guidance of history, through miracles, and through the incarnation and the fact of the incarnation, and through the image of God in every human being. That's just a long technical definition. But God, everybody knows God exists. There's not a single person on the planet that's ever been born that reached a level of consciousness that doesn't know God exists. And that level when they realize it is called God consciousness, and it's going to differ from culture to culture and family to family depending upon what's going on in the family. Special revelation has to do with that which God has revealed to us and disclosed to us. Okay, I'm not going to go through that whole definition. But here's the value that God places on his word. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's inerrant, it's infallible, is without flaw in its original transmission. Converting the soul. By transmission, I mean transmission in writing. Converting the soul. That's the first thing that it can do. It's powerful to convert the soul and move the soul from what? From death to life. And notice there's a different term in every ver- Every verse has two different terms for the word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes the simple wise. So I've seen people who barely have room temperature IQ, who sit under good Bible teaching for years, and they know more than a lot of people who have 140, 150, 160 IQs, because they listen and they trust and obey the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes so both of those talk about how it makes us wise and it enlightens us to reality the fear of the lord is clean enduring forever the judgments of the lord are true and righteous altogether. so if you want truth you want righteousness you want justice in the world justice in your uh in your nation it starts with the word of god now how valued are they More to be desired are they than gold. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You can have ten times the money of George Soros or um, um, any other wealthy person that we can think of. The guy who founded Microsoft, his name just slipped my head, Bill Gates. And uh, you can have ten times their money, and guess what? The Bible is worth more. It's more valuable. That knowledge of God's Word is more valuable than all that they have and all that they can buy with all that they have. It's more valuable than even the finest of gold, the finest of what wealth can buy. Sweeter also than the honey. There's not a person in here that doesn't get hungry, and sometimes you have great desires for something sweet. Remember, in the ancient world, they didn't have refined sugar. If they wanted something sweet, it came from fruit or it came from honey. And honey has the most, and that was greatly desired. That's how valuable the Word of God is. There is absolutely not one thing you can think of in life that is more important than internalizing the Word of God and transforming your life. Not one thing. And that has to be the priority, so that we organize our lives around learning the Word of God and internalizing it. And verse eleven says, "Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there's great reward." I've run into a lot of lot of Christians who are quietly very pleased with themselves that they read their Bible every day, they memorize Scripture. Uh, They go to church consistently. They take in the word. But I don't find too many that would fit this pattern. When Nehemiah came back to, with, and brought about 45,000 Jews back from Babylon, they rebuilt the walls in the midst of a lot of opposition from the ancient version of the Palestinians, their terrorism and everything else. Afterwards, they gathered the people together and read to them from the Scripture. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. I'm assuming that's one-fourth of the daylight hours. So we're still talking about three or four hours. And then, for another fourth of the day, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. That's a response to the teaching of God's Word. So what we learn from this is orienting to doctrine, orienting to the teaching of the Word, basically means that we have to evaluate our priorities. We have to think through what is really valuable to us? What will count for eternity? What will enable us to get through uh, not only the uh, good times, but especially the bad times? First thing we need to do is we need to read the Bible. You need to read the Bible every day. Now, sometimes we won't get to it. I may miss two or three days a week, but I, my goal is to read it every day. Some weeks, I read it every day in the morning when I get up. Just We all have circumstances that interfere at times. But we read our Bible every day, get on a one-year Bible reading plan. I choose a Bible reading plan that's broken down by five days a week because that gives me two days a week to catch up when I miss. We read the Bible. You set a goal. If you read like a normal American then you can read through the Bible by reading it 20 minutes a day, five days a week. You can do it. It may take you five minutes longer, but you'll still get it done. Now, the way they organize a chapter, sometimes you hit chapters that have you know, 57 verses, and that's going to take you a little longer. But then you're going to hit those first seven chapters in Chronicles, that are just genealogies and you'll skip that and think oh boy i just got two days ahead you need to increase whatever you are you need to increase your study of god's word there's always more that you can do you can listen to bible class maybe you can't get here but you can live stream or you can listen to it the next morning whatever fits but we have bible class and there's a between 2,000 and 2,500 hours up on the internet if you have something else that you want to listen to. And you should make room for personal study. You should be taking notes in your Bible and taking notes uh, during Bible class when we're teaching the Word, and then have time during the week where you reflect on that. When I make points about certain things, you can rephrase them in your notes and say, I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to change this. And so you have to read the Bible. You have to increase the amount of study you do. And third, you need to take time to just really reflect on what must I do in light of what this says. That's how we get there. Now we're going to talk on... Doctrinal orientation, a little more, but this is just the introduction. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to reflect upon the value that we should place upon your word, to be reminded that we are to learn your word. It is your word that is powerful, and it is your word that is living, and it is through your word that we are sanctified. But in our study, we also synthesize the principles. We come to understand the principles. We understand the dynamics that are going on, and that gives us a grid through which we can uh, wash our application in different circumstances in life. But, Father, we need to desire your word more than anything. And, Father, we pray that you might uh, increase that desire in us that we may desire not only to know your word, but through it to come to know you better and come to live more consistently with what the Scripture says. And we are reminded that Scripture says that if we love you, we keep your commandments. And so in order to keep your commandments, we have to know your commandments. We have to understand them, which ones are for us, which ones are not, and what they mean. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us in those areas. And, Father, we pray, too, for those who are listening who may not yet know that Christ died for their sins, may not yet be believers, may not yet realize that they need to have everlasting life because we've been all born spiritually dead and sinners and separated from you, and that the only way back is to... A trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the God-man who died on the cross for us in our place, took our punishment on himself, that by believing in him, we might have everlasting life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.